Let's take our Bible to the book of John, Gospel according to John. Uh, we're going to look at two verses here to open up in verse, 20, verse 24 and verse 25 of chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. And uh, this is going to be kind of a more of a summary message as we look at uh, the last message of Changed Lives at Christ's Advent. We've, we've looked at several key people through, that were affected and impacted by the immediate coming of Christ in that day. And this is more of just an overview of the impact of Christ uh, as a whole with His coming into the world. And so the title of the message is Never the Same Since Christ Came. Never the Same Since Christ Came. And these two verses, I think, um, I think illustrate this to an extent. And uh, verses that um, I cherish and are very interesting at the same time. But notice uh, the, the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, verse 24 and 20, verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You ever read a passage many times, and then you read it this one particular time, and it just kind of jumps out at you? Uh, you see things that maybe you just didn't think about before. Uh, now, we look at these, these pa- this passage is one of those for me. I remember the first time I ever read this passage, I was like, wow, what's he saying there? Uh, the, the closing words of John the Apostle to his gospel, and we know that the Apostle John, how important was he to the ministry of Jesus? Well, he walked with Jesus for three and a half years of his life, didn't he? Uh, he was, I guess you could say, in his inner circle. Uh, he was one of those few that got to see the Mount of Transfiguration, a few other things where Jesus had called us along with uh, Peter, James, and John. And this passage that, that he writes here, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now how many books are written about prominent and well-known men throughout history, right? Thousands upon thousands uh, of books written on people that have stuck out, people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, uh, people who were great war heroes and uh, different things of that nature, many religious people. But from John's estimation, notice that he writes, if everything Jesus did were to be written, the world itself could not contain the books. And I just ponder upon that statement and what it means and how it speaks to us. Now, I think that John is speaking in somewhat hyperbolic terminology, but what he's saying here emphasizes, it emphasizes really the limitless magnitude of Jesus' impact in his arrival into this world. Uh, all of his arrival, his, in what he did, his, his incarnation through the virgin birth, uh, his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, because John here, he records a lot of things, but he doesn't record everything that is written, that, that what Jesus had did. And that kind of makes me think, how much did Jesus do that we don't have knowledge about, that if it was pinned down, we would just be absolutely fascinated by that. Uh, but the Holy Spirit governed Scripture and gave us everything we needed to know about the life and ministry of Jesus that proves who He is, what He's done, and all that He's accomplished. So I'm very thankful for that. But nevertheless, when we look at this, from this testimony of John, there is zero doubt that the impact of Jesus when he came into this world was uh, truly extraordinary. It is limitless. 
Now, we've been looking at people who were directly impacted and changed by the coming of Christ at his birth, uh, with people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've looked at Mary. We've looked at Joseph. We've looked at Anna and Simeon, the shepherds and the magi, all these people that surround uh, the advent of Jesus who were changed and impacted in some way by his arrival. And they are only the start of an untold number of people who were changed and are impacted by Christ from the day He came all the way up until today, in which you and I are sitting here, and which will actually reach beyond us until the day He comes. So I think it's a wonderful thing to consider the impact of Christ on the world. So notice within our, in our notes tonight, I, want, I broke this down into three just overarching headings to, uh, to summarize, I guess, the impact of Jesus on this world. Notice with me, Number one, I want us to look at the impact of Christ's ministry. The impact of Christ's ministry, because this is essentially where it picks up for us. Outside of the birth accounts and the announcement and one account where he's 12 years old, we don't have much information about Jesus' youth and on into adulthood, even to his 20s. Where do we see Jesus when he picks up in his ministry? Well, he's about 30 years of age, isn't he? And so we look at him starting his ministry, and the first thing I want to point out about his ministry is this, is his preaching. His preaching was unmistakable to any others, all right? It was unmistakable or incomparable to any others. His ministry begins, as we know, with the baptism, his baptism at the Jordan River, and we recall what took place at that event. As he comes to the Jordan River and he's baptized by John the Baptist, we know that God the Father spoke from heaven. And what did God the Father say? He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And I love that statement and that whole scene there as you see the, really the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Son there in human form, being baptized. God the Spirit descending like a dove. And then God the Father speaking from heaven. But there has never been a man in all of history with whom God could say he was well pleased. Now, there has been other men who had known God and walked with God, and they had pleased Him in the sense that He had saved them and made them new, and they were following Him with their life. But there's only one man in all of history who has pleased God the Father in this sense, in the sense that He was perfect and sinless. He was absolutely blameless. You see, God the Son, Jesus, He's the one man who did not need salvation. He's the one man who kept God's law, every jot and every tittle of it. He's the one man who lived with zero sin, being perfectly holy in human flesh. Now, this, this, this uh, incarnation of Jesus, he would be put to the test as after his baptism, he would go out into the wilderness and be tempted of Satan for uh, quite some time, but we know that he triumphed over all sin and Satan in himself. But this, with this, all this in mind, this backdrop, Jesus returned from his temptation in the wilderness back to his home region of Galilee where he began teaching in the synagogue and preaching the gospel. He went throughout that region with the ministry of proclaiming, preaching the message of the Messiah to repent and believe what? The gospel, right? Mark 1, here's what we read. Jesus came into Galilee, verse 14 and 15 proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message. 
Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God has come. It is at hand. Now we notice that he went on to Nazareth, to the town he grew up in, and there he entered the synagogue and began to read a scripture that declared his ministry and what he'd be doing. Notice with me as we read this text in Luke chapter number 4, verse 17 through verse 22 for a moment. I love this passage as this is uh, near the beginning of his ministry in Luke's account. And here's what we find happens. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, as you read this prophecy that Jesus reads, what do you see is repeated that he is doing? The Messiah, it says of the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to do what? To proclaim the good news and to proclaim liberty to the captives and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So central to the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, was what? Preaching. He would come into the the scene of Israel and he would be proclaiming and preaching uh, the truths of, of, of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. And so this is the good news that we read of in Scripture. Now, we notice how they first responded in verse 22. They all spoke well of him, marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful response, right? But as you read the rest of this narrative, you're going to find by the time he ends in the synagogue, they're taking him out to the brow of the hill of Nazareth and wanting to kill him. And so you're going to find this reaction uh, as well as other reactions to Jesus. Some people were astonished and amazed at his preaching. Others were filled with anger at his preaching. And the reason for this is because Jesus always preached what was true. And uh, that is, that, you can expect that even in our own day. You preach truth, some ain't going to like it, some are going to receive it, and that's out of our control. Uh, but regardless, we preach truth, don't we? We preach truth. So, so his preaching, understand, his preaching was only truth, and nothing but truth could flow from his lips. Now, he was the preacher of all preachers. Now, there's been a lot of great preachers and teachers throughout the history of, uh, of the church. We can think of many in our Christian heritage that, that come to mind, people like George Whitfield or uh, Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you know, Spurgeon was known as the prince of preachers in his day. That was uh, a, t- a title kind of coined to him. But his voice and written sermons are estimated to have reached well over 10 million people and continue to reach people today, from evangelists and missionaries and pastors to artists and writers, even to presidents. Spurgeon was known for this thing. Preaching, right? When you think of Spurgeon, what do you think of? You think of preaching. That's what he was, and that's what he was known for. Uh, And so this is God's ordained means of of reaching people with the gospel uh, and by means of which he regenerates hearts. It's through the preaching of the Word of God. And, And so preaching is central to the ministry of the gospel. 
Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, the world around us looks at a guy like me standing in front of you and preaching. They look at that as folly. They look at the message of the cross as foolishness, like that's such a foolish thing, right? But we know that it is the power of God into salvation. And so this practice of preaching, this is what we see central to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Central. And no one could fulfill preaching better than Jesus. No one. The preaching of Jesus could not be mistaken. His preaching and teaching were absolutely unlike any other. Any other. Now, when Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount, what was the response of the people? You remember how they thought of that? Matthew seven twenty-eight through 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, there's a lot of preachers and teachers in that day, all right? Scribes would teach the law, preachers, uh, prophets would preach uh, throughout the history of, of Israel. But there was never a teacher or preacher who affected the people the way that Jesus did. He spoke with authority because he had authority in everything that he said. No teacher or preacher is even comparable to Jesus. What it must have been like, as I think, to have sat in that crowd and to heard the voice of Jesus proclaiming and teaching the word of the living God. Now, when Jesus preached, people flocked to hear him. Thousands of people, hundreds of people, depending on what area he was in sought to hear the word of God. If he was preaching or teaching anywhere, crowds would gather to hear him. Mark 2 and verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door, and he was preaching the word unto them. He'd be in a house, and the crowd would overflow around the house just trying to hear him, pressing upon him to hear the word of God. And why is this? Because his words that he preached... They were the very word of God flowing from the lips of God. What is Jesus' title throughout the, at the beginning of the book of John? Who is he? He is the word, right? The eternal word, the living word. And, and so what Jesus preached was not religious filler or, or fake. They were life-changing words. Jesus uh, brought conviction to hearts. He brought conversion to hearts. He changed hearts. And so the preaching of Jesus, it impacted not only his generation, but every generation from his generation to this generation, all the way to the last generation in human history. Think about that. You and I today, nearly 2,000 years disconnected from when Jesus walked this earth, study and preach and teach the sermons Jesus preached. His preaching was unmistakable. Letter B, in regards to his ministry, the impact of his ministry, his power was unmatched. His power was unmatched. Now, power is a great attraction to the human mind, isn't it? All men in this world want power in whatever form they can get it. They want financial power, they want military power, they want political power, social power, whatever kind you could name. And many men have come to possess those forms of power. There's a lot of powerful individuals militarily, financially, politically. But what man in history has ever possessed supernatural 
power. Power to do that which is humanly impossible. None. No man has ever had the power to defy what uh, is impossible. For example, defying the very laws of nature that God has set in place. What man has had the power to do what is humanly impossible? When something supernatural is accomplished, what is the source or who is the source that is usually given credit? That must have been God, right? Like Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. No man can do these things that you're doing except God be with him. I mean, even that religious Pharisee, he recognized that what Jesus was doing with his miracles and his power, this can't be just an ordinary man in his own power. Something is unique about this man. And so we see that, that when it comes to this kind of power and doing the impossible, it is God alone who can do the impossible. Just like Gabriel told Mary when she was going to conceive, being a virgin. So during the ministry of Jesus, and I love reading through the Gospels for this very reason, seeing and reading of these events, he manifested a power that had never been witnessed on this earth, a power that could only be attributed to God alone. Read the Gospel accounts, and what I like to do sometimes when I read the Gospel accounts is put myself in that generation. Put myself in the shoes of some of these people that saw and experienced this as if he was, if it was happening today. Jesus performed miracles, impossible actions by man's capability. He turned water into wine, the first miracle. A miracle that, that completely bypasses the need of time and fermentation. Water doesn't just instantly turn into wine. Nor does grape juice, press, freshly squeezed, instantly turn into wine. You see, that's a miracle in itself that he bypassed that by his own power. Think of, think of these things that he's done. He healed the blind and the deaf, giving them sight and hearing instantly. Not a process of medication or, or, or therapy, but, but instant healing, instantly changing their life. He freed those who were possessed by demons and tormented by them throughout their life. Matthew 12, 12, 22 tells us this, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and, notice these three words, he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. He, he healed him. Just right there. That's, that's as, as deep and detailed of a description you get. He's just healed instantly, right? Just like that. He healed paralyzed people, diseased people, demon-possessed people as we saw, all in just a moment. Matthew 4, 24 Listen to this. This is, this is just a, a summary verse, okay, that encompasses so much within one little verse. Matthew 4.24 says this, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and those three words again, and he healed you imagine this flock of, of, of people with various infirmities coming to Jesus and he just heals them on the spot. Heals them on the spot. He healed lepers, those who, whose flesh was deteriorating. He healed them with just a word. He walked upon water, an action that defies the laws of nature. He calmed raging storms in which his disciples thought they were going to die in. Lord, he's asleep on the boat and they're, they're saying, Lord, do you not care that we're going to perish? 
Mark 4.39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You recall his disciples responded, what manner of man is this that he commands the winds and the seas and they obey him. They obey him. We know the power of nature, right? And, and with the word, Jesus, Jesus just brings it all under his control. As if all of this isn't enough, Jesus even raised the dead by calling them out by name. The greatest example of this in the Gospels, I think, is Lazarus. John 11, 43 and 44, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Imagine seeing that. Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, and his sisters tell Jesus, by now, Lord, he's already stinking. His body's starting to decompose. But Jesus goes to the tomb, makes the stone roll away, tells them to move the stone, and he calls him by name. And Lazarus comes out, comes out of the grave, walking, alive and well. Imagine being his disciples and seeing that. What was the response of the people in that generation? You look at chapter 4 of Luke, we're already there. I left you there just so we could read it. Verse 36 and 37, after he heals this demon-possessed man, it says, they were all amazed and said one to another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went about into every place in the surrounding region. I mean, imagine if they had had social media back in that day. Cameras, phones, they didn't have that. All they've got is word of mouth. Maybe a, a letter, but they didn't have, you know, a postal system like we've got. So you can imagine one passes the word to another, so they go to another region. One passes the word to another. And throughout all the land of Israel, it's just spreading who Jesus is and what he's doing and the fame of him. They're taken back by them, by all of this. Jesus did what no man had done or could do. And this is why the coming of Christ has impacted the world. Because He is the eternal God who entered into history that He set in motion. And He made an impact that will never be matched. See, He wasn't just the good preacher, He was the best preacher. The best preacher. He wasn't just a good person. He was the perfect person. He didn't have just a little bit of power. He was all powerful. And this is why when Christ came into the world, he changed people's lives. That would in turn affect the world in which we live. Number two, I want you to see the impact of Christ's mission. His mission. Because his mission was not just to come preach. His mission was not just to come perform miracles by this great power. All of it leads up to one central mission, and that is accomplishing redemption for His people. Christ's death accomplished redemption from sin. Christ's death accomplished redemption from sin. Now, when we look at how great a preacher He was, how powerful He was, and, and people look at the ministry of Jesus, and some might wonder, why would such a man of power allow himself to be crucified? How could such a thing happen? In fact, that's what the disciples thought when he was first betrayed and crucified. 
This was part of the taunting that was made to Jesus when he hung there on the cross. Remember what those that were standing by said? Luke 23, 35, the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. In one of the other gospel accounts, they said, If you really are the Christ, come down from the cross and then we'll believe you. As if all the other things aren't enough, right? Raising the dead, that's not enough. They mocked him with this. If any other man had the power that Christ did, there is not one hint of a chance that they would have allowed themselves to be killed, let alone be crucified. If Jesus truly was all-powerful in his message and his miracles, how could he be put to death? See, the Romans and the Jews thought that they were putting Jesus to death, but they were wrong. Jesus was not put to death. You cannot put to death one who is all-powerful unless the one with that power allows it to happen. This is the entire principle of the gospel. He was not some religious zealot who was betrayed and put to death by a greater power, no. He's the all-powerful God who humbled himself and gave himself up to die at the hands of sinful men. Jesus said this himself in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. Talking about his life. No one takes him from me. Not the Jews, not Rome, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, nothing and no one could kill Jesus unless he allowed that to happen. Doesn't matter how powerful Rome thought they were. Jesus had more power than them. So Jesus willingly laid down his life in death. That brings the question, why would such an all-powerful person give himself to die in such a horrific manner? Jesus answers that question in that same passage of John 10. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why must the good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep? Because of the sinfulness of their nature in life. You see, their sin demands the judgment and wrath of the Almighty, the holy judge of the earth, and that is true of every individual, we all have sin that we are worthy of God's wrath for. The sinful nature and actions of mankind have one result, death, physically, spiritually, and eternally. And Jesus came to die in the place of sinners as a substitute to pay the debt that sinners owe. Now, this challenges me, and now to challenge you. Think of your sins. Do you know of them? Could you count them? They're more than you could count. Every sin, every sin is worthy of God's wrath and justice. Every sin. There's not one that slips by as not that big a deal. Every single sin. Those you know about only, nobody else knows about. Every sin. Think of your sins. It is impossible for you to clear them. 
It is impossible for you to do away with them. It is impossible for you to atone for them. This is why Jesus came to die, to do what men, sinful men, could not do. And the glory of Jesus' death is that He died for the sins of His people, both past, present, and future. The birth announcement we looked at, Luke 2.11, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus genuinely and truly is the Savior. The Savior genuinely and truly saves saves people from their sins. And this was His mission from the beginning, long before the galaxies or the stars or the planets or or the earth or the oceans or the skies, the animals or mankind, long before all of creation, this is the mission that is set into motion. The redemption of sinners is the central purpose of Christ coming into the world. 1 Peter 1 and verse 18 through 21. What a wonderful passage this is as Peter is writing to these Christians about their redemption, being ransomed, bought and paid for. He says in verse 18 of 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's saying there, your redemption could not be bought with the most valuable of materials in this world. Something has to exceed the value of those. Something God would accept, and it was the precious blood of Christ. In verse 20, we see this eternal purpose. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for you, the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter is saying that Christ and what He's done, His redemption, that plan was set in motion before the foundation of the world. He brought it to pass. So what does this mean? Jesus did not die a horrific, blood-shedding death by accident. It was the very reason He came into the world. He was born to die so that His people may live. And Philippians 2 encompasses this. In verse 8, He says, Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So the people understand that He died for. He died to genuinely save them from their sin. And understand that His people that He saves, they are not only in His generation, but they are in every generation of human history. Praise God for that. Which leads us to the obvious aspect, the second point here about the mission of Christ. We see that Christ's death accomplished redemption, but Christ's resurrection accomplished victory over death. You see, when Christ gave Himself to die for sin, His disciples didn't fully understand, did they? They didn't. Jesus told them about his plan, but they didn't comprehend that. And as we read Luke's account, it was hidden from them for a reason until the time of understanding was to be brought forth for them. And when Jesus was taken and tortured and crucified, how did his disciples react when he was betrayed in the garden? Mark fourteen fifty tells us they all left him and fled. They just scattered. 
They'd committed their lives to him for three and a half years and saw all that they saw, but now when he's betrayed, they scatter. Scatter. They felt hopeless and confused. They didn't see the bigger picture of what Jesus was actually accomplishing, uh, though they knew he was their salvation. He was the Messiah. But what we find in the gospel message is that Jesus' death for sin was only the beginning of his measureless impact that he would bring. Because after three days, he did exactly what he told his disciples. And what did he tell them? In Mark 8, 3, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. See, that glorious third day came and Jesus arose from death, defeating the very power of death itself. We read this glorious truth in 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see this with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 through verse 8. We know that this chapter is a wonderful resurrection chapter. but We see the gospel in its simplicity. As you look at verse 3 through verse 8, he says, For I delivered unto you... For at the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, with, with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What happens after Christ's resurrection? He is seen physically alive. Physically. And guess who saw him alive? It was his disciples and hundreds more. Notice this repeated phrase here. Four times Paul says he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, or he was seen, he was seen. He was seen. Isn't rising from death impossible? Yes, if you're a man. Jesus was born into this world not just only as man, but God, the God of life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Death had no chance of holding Jesus in the grave. As Peter preached on Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not a possibility that Jesus stays in the tomb. And so Christ, by the authority of God, promised He would rise. His words were not empty aspirations. They were unbreakable promises. And what would the impact of a risen dead man have on you if you had seen Him? If you had been the disciples and saw Him taken in the garden, taken all the way to the Jewish priests and on to Pilate, and on to Golgotha's hill, so bloody and marred beyond nearly recognition, as Isaiah says. You saw all that happen. You saw his life taken or given from Jesus' standpoint, but taken from a Roman and Jewish standpoint. What would you think if you saw him alive three days later? We know that even when he came to the disciples and Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas, what did he say? Except I see and can touch his hands and his side where the nails where he was pierced. 
I'll not believe. That next gathering, the disciples are all gathered and Thomas is there and Jesus comes in the room and who's the first person he goes to? He goes exactly to Thomas and says, Thomas, touch my hand. Touch my side. And what was Thomas's reaction? My Lord and my God. What would the effect of the resurrection of the Lord have on the disciples, on that generation of Christians, on every generation of Christians? Friend, the resurrection of Christ is the hinge upon which all Christianity swings. Because if Jesus is still dead in the tomb, He is no Savior at all. It is not only the hinge, but it is also the power that guarantees Christianity is the only true faith and way of life. All other religion is dead religion. Only Christianity has a risen living Lord that guarantees salvation. And that was Christ's mission. He fulfilled it, which brings an eternal impact. Notice with me number three, the impact of Christ's message. And this is the message we're gathered for tonight. This is the message that changed us, that saved us, that continues to save. And it is the gospel. The gospel of Christ continues to save. The gospel, plain and simple, is the good news of what Christ came to do. He came to bring salvation to unworthy sinners. He came to save a wretch like me. This salvation is only true by means of His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And that message did not only save sinners at the time in which Jesus walked this earth. The gospel message is a timeless message, a supernatural message. It's a message that makes dead men alive. It's a message that, that replaces hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that beat and feel and know God. It's a message that gives sinners a new birth, that makes sinners into a new creation. It's a message that we have nothing to be ashamed about. Nothing. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is that message. It's the message that saved me as a child as the Holy Spirit directed it to the depths of my own heart, convicting me of my sinfulness before God, my condemnation before God, turning my hope to Christ alone, creating faith in me. I was reading John Bunyan this morning as he spoke of God's work in bringing sinners to himself. And he said, when all refuge fails, a man is made to see that there is nothing left in him but sin, death, and damnation. Unless he flies to Christ for life, then he flies and not until then. There is a sense of absolute need of Jesus Christ. Lord, save me or I perish. And this is the truth for all of us who have been born again. Lord, save me or I perish. If you're a Christian today, this gospel message has saved you. If you're not a Christian, understand it is the only message that can save you. For salvation is in Christ alone. 
There is no salvation outside of Him. And He can save you, but only through faith alone in Him. Corey Ten Boom commented and said this, We can get to heaven without health, without wealth, without fame, without learning, without culture, without beauty, without friends, without 10,000 things. But we can never get to heaven without Christ. It's only Him. So this message has saved sinners in every generation of humanity and will continue to do so until the very last day of human history. The extent of the gospel's saving work is far beyond what you and I can fathom in our minds. Multitudes beyond number have been purchased by the Lamb. And every one purchased will be brought to Christ. We sing that beloved song, Jesus paid it all. I often say he'll get all he paid for. You see, the coming of Christ into the world and his gospel triumph fulfills what God promised long ago to Abraham. I connect this with the Old Testament just for a moment. Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18. You remember God's promise to Abraham. Part of the Abrahamic covenant, he says to him, after he obeyed in taking Isaac up, which was a picture of what would happen at the cross, the substitution that God the Son would give. He says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When we look at the connection of that into the New Testament, who are the offspring of Abraham? Paul says in Galatians, all those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had he. I'm one of them and so are you. Remember that song? This includes a countless number from every nation as God promised. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed because in Abraham, in his line, would be Christ who would bring saints to himself, sinners to himself and make them saints. We see just a glimpse of that in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. John sees this vision. He says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number from every nation. All the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a marvelous thing day it will be when we enter the eternal state in a multitude beyond number that Christ has saved and you're among them. The gospel saves the most wicked of sinners. Liars, thieves, fornicators, murderers. It saves the worst of the worst, changes them and gives them new life with him. As a result of the gospel's impact, we notice letter B that the the kingdom of Christ continues to spread. You see, this message of the Savior became the church's mission to spread it. And that's exactly what happened. Even when they were standing still in Jerusalem, God brought persecution. What did that do? Made the gospel message spread. Acts 8.4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's why we ought not to be stagnant. We ought to be going. But what we find with the gospel message is that ridicule couldn't hinder it. Opposition couldn't slow it down. Persecution won't stop it. Martyrdom only increased it. 
The gospel always prevails and it never fails. It always accomplishes that which God wants it to do. And why does the gospel message do this? Because Christ, the Christ who came into this world, came with a sovereign purpose that cannot be stopped. And with the spread of the gospel is the spread of the kingdom of God as more and more people are gathered through conversion. To illustrate this, Jesus told several parables And there's two that stick out that give you just a big picture look at this. In Matthew 13, 31 and 33, he says, he put a parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. In both of those examples, what's he show? It starts small, but it gradually grows large. And this is what we see through Christian history. Christianity started where? In a small place with a small amount of people. And what have we found? It has gradually and slowly spread all the way through all these years across the globe, even to your generation across the planet, you're so far from Israel, nearly 2,000 years disconnected from when the gospel took place. It came and reached your heart. And This is the marvelous plan of God, is that His kingdom in His people spreads as the gospel message prevails. Friend, this is why you and I are here. Why you and I are here. So as we close, there's not one person in all of history, nor ever will be, that has impacted the world like Jesus. Not one. Because He is the Savior of the world. He is God in flesh who was born to die so that His people could live. I've never been the same since Christ entered my life. Have you? The day He entered my life, I was changed. I wasn't made perfect, but I was changed. He's slowly working on me. And I know He's slowly working on each of us. And I pray tonight, if you don't know Christ, that you would see through what we've looked at tonight that He is salvation. You must have Him alone. Turn to Him. Believe on Him. Trust in Him.